Welcome to episode 5 of the Bible Q&A with Pastor Stephen. My name is Stephen Pace and I'm the senior pastor at Decatur Bible Church in Decatur, Michigan. This podcast attempts to answer Bible questions in a clear but thorough manner. If you would like to have a Bible-related question considered for a future episode, you can email your question to me at pastorstephendbc at gmail.com. Again, that's pastor, S-T-E-V-E-N-D-B-C at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll be looking at three questions. So grab your Bibles and let's get started. The first question is, does the Bible teach capital punishment? Does it not also say, thou shalt not kill? In order to answer this question, I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 9 and verse 5. And we're going to read there where after the flood, uh, and this is in the chapter related to the covenant of the rainbow, God says in Genesis Chapter 9 and verse 5, Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast I will require it, and from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Verse 6, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. So there in Genesis chapter 9 verses 5 through 6, we see where God instituted what we would refer to as capital punishment. At the time, of course, he didn't use that phrase, but that is the concept, and that's where we get the idea from, and this is where the question comes from. God actually reinforced this as well. You can read in Exodus 21.12, he says, quote, He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. So God obviously has a supreme value that he's placed on humanity. When I was reading Genesis 9 and verse 6, if you'll notice at the very end, it says that the reason for this is because man is made in the image of God, the Imago Dei. And so man has value and purpose and meaning, and God highly values life. Now, the question that was asked was not just does the Bible teach capital punishment, which it does, but how does one reconcile this with what we would refer to as the Sixth Commandment? The Sixth Commandment is in Exodus chapter 20, along with, of course, the other ones. But in Exodus chapter 20, in verse 13, it says, You shall not murder. Some translations use the phrase, thou shall not kill. The idea is that one would not be murdered or be a manslayer. So if you looked the word up in Hebrew, you would see where the Hebrew word there, that thou shall not, and it'll say murder or be a manslayer or killer, you could say. Uh, for example, you'll see this translated as murder in the New American Standard Bible, the New King James, and other such translations. So it does mean to kill, but it has in mind a willful murder of another human. And again, humans being made in the image of God, having great value and meaning to God, 
he sees that as being necessary to restrain evil. Of course, government was put into place not to completely eradicate evil, but to hopefully subdue it uh, to some degree, as you see here as well. I'd ask you also to turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 13. In Romans chapter 13, uh, you have Paul's description on how Christians uh, should be subject to the government uh, wherever they may reside. But in verse 4 of Romans 13, it says, For it is a minister of God to you for your good, speaking of those who are put in government authorities as rulers and such. But you'll notice it says, But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. So the idea of sword clearly is, if you will, symbolizing that the government has the right to inflict punishment on those who bring forth evil. And in this case, it could be the sword being used for such things as capital punishment, as we've already seen in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6, as well as referenced or alluded to in Exodus as well. So hopefully that answers and clarifies that question. Does the Bible teach capital punishment? And the answer is yes. Does it also, and how do you reconcile that with the sixth commandment? And we do that fairly easily by remembering that the sixth commandment is not simply referring to just killing someone. So for example, uh, an accident, those sorts of things, but willful murder against another human, humans being made in the image of God. Now our next question in this episode is a trivia question. The trivia question is, what angels are given names in the Bible? First off, in order to answer this, we're going to look at a few passages of Scripture. The first thing to understand is that angels are spirit beings. Their nature is that of a spiritual being. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 1 in verse 14. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14, it says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Now the they that is mentioned there are the aforementioned angels. Uh, the author of Hebrews has been going about describing the supremacy of Jesus Christ, him being supreme over even the angelic beings. So for example, you see earlier on in verse 6, and let all the angels of God worship him. So the idea here again is that angels are spirit beings. I think unfortunately we have in the media and movies and things like that almost had humanized angels where they are in fact spirit beings they're also created by god of course through jesus christ let's turn for that to psalm 148 verses 2 and 5 so as we look at psalm 148 psalm 148 is looking at the whole of creation praising the lord 
But let's look at verse 2. It says, Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his host. So there, what you see is, of course, the reference to the angelic beings. And they are called to praise the Lord. Just like in verse 3, it'll be called upon the sun, the moon, the stars to praise the Lord. But if you notice verse 5, it says, Let them, the them being what he's just described, the psalmist, that the angels, the host, the sun, moon, and stars, it says, Let them praise the name of the Lord. But notice, For he commanded, and they were created. So again, angels, to be understanding them in a brief way, they're spiritual beings, Hebrews 1.14, and that they were created by the Lord himself, 148th Psalm, verses 2 and 5. So they are not loved ones who have died. They are not evolved creatures or anything like that. So with that in mind, the question is, are any angels given specific names? Now, interestingly enough with this is that there are myriads and myriads and thousands upon thousands of angels. They're essentially described in terms of numerically as an inability to count them. We just simply wouldn't be able to number them. So amidst the many countless angels that God has, these spirit beings, there are four that are given in the scriptures. And so they are Gabriel, Michael, Lucifer, otherwise known as Satan, and then Apollyon, which is mentioned in the book of Revelation. So again, Gabriel, Michael, Lucifer, and Apollyon, those are the four that are given actual names in the Bible. So you have angels as spirit beings whom the Lord created, but while there are many classifications, so cherubim and seraphim and such, there are four that are named among the many myriads described, and they are again Gabriel, Michael, Lucifer, and Apollyon. And now for our third and final question for this episode. In Matthew 24 and verse 40, who are those that are taken away that Jesus references? Are they believers, unbelievers? Who are they? Let's turn in your Bibles to Matthew 24 and look at this question in verse 40. And it refers to two men in a field. One will be taken and one will be left. In order to get a general idea of where we are and Jesus' teaching here on the Olivet Discourse. Jesus in Matthew 24 has begun to describe a variety of things that will happen prior to his second coming. So he describes things that will take place during the tribulation period. He comes to and draws that particular section to a close in verse 31. But then in verse 32 through 35, he describes what is called the parable of the fig tree. And then says in verse 36 that no man knows the day of the hour. No one, not even the angels, the Son, but the Father alone. 
So in order to answer the question, let's look at verses 37 through 39. The reason for doing this is, of course, we want to make sure we get the context right, uh, which we've got a basic idea of that. This is the Olivet Discourse, Jesus teaching on the end times, things that will relate to his second coming, those things that lead up to it. But let's read verse 37. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, and one will be left. So when we look at this, in order to answer it, we of course know that Jesus is referring to the period of time related to the second coming. And he draws a parallel or likens it to, as I read in verse 37, the days of Noah. Now the days of Noah would be referring to back in Genesis chapter 6 and the various things that were going on in the days of Noah. In verse 38, though, it says, For as in those days before the flood they were carrying on and doing the normal things of life until Noah entered the ark, but then the flood came and took them all away. So they were eating, marrying, and doing a variety of things, and then the flood took them away. So in order to answer the question about who is taken away in Matthew 24 and verse 40, all we have to do is go back to Genesis and ask ourselves, who was taken away in the flood? Who is the them that Jesus is referring to? Well, it was the unbelievers in Noah's day who were taken into judgment. They were taken away into judgment when the flood came. It took them by surprise. They were taken away into judgment. And of course, that is exactly what Jesus says will happen at his second coming. So in a similar way, at Jesus' second coming, unbelievers will be taken away, and they'll be taken away for the purposes of judgment. Now, you can also see a similar teaching of this in Matthew 13, verses 47 through 52. It's sometimes called the parable of the dragnet. And it describes essentially the same type of thing about there being a judgment of those who are unbelievers and unsaved. So again, in order to answer the question, all we have to do is Jesus is paralleling his second coming with the days of Noah. Noah, of course, prepared for that time. And those that were unprepared, unbelievers, the unsaved, if you will, when the judgment came... When the flood came, the flood took them all away, and in a similar manner will take them, the unbelievers at that time, at the time of his second coming, will take them away into judgment. So this isn't referring to the rapture of the church, which will ha happen prior to the tribulation period. This is referring to Jesus' second coming at the end of the tribulation, and those who are unsaved will be taken away into judgment. 
I'm going to read a summary here. It's from the late Renald Showers. He says, quote, Jesus was not referring to the rapture of the church in Matthew 24. When that event takes place, all the saved will be removed from the earth to meet Christ in the air, and all the unsaved will be left on the earth. Thus, the rapture will occur in reverse of the order of things in the days of Noah, and, therefore, the reverse of the order at Jesus' second coming immediately after the great tribulation. So those that are taken are the unsaved at the end of the tribulation period, just as it was in the days of Noah. If you would like a full treatment of this, uh, an in-depth study of this, I can recommend to you a book that is called The Sign of His Coming, Understanding the Olivet Discourse, and it is by the late Renald Showers. Again, The Sign of His Coming, Understanding the Olivet Discourse, Renald Showers uh, does a great job of explaining that, and uh, you can also check out his book on the rapture, the definitive study on it, and he compares the differences between the second coming and the rapture which also help with these questions as well so hopefully that helps address that well that concludes today's episode be sure to tune in again for our next episode may god bless you